Jamie, I am one of the pastors here, and uh, it is my honor and privilege to be back again with you. Today we are in the book of Luke, the New Testament book of Luke. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab one from the pew in front of you. If you'll be uh, reading from the Black Bible, I'll be on page 856, Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 39 down to 56, Luke 1, 39 to 56. Here's what we'll do. I'll go ahead and read the passage to get us started, ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work working our way through this passage a little bit at a time. So it should be around 45 minutes or so. Let's pick up reading where we left off last week, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39, we'll have the slides up here so that you can follow along if you, would, if you would like. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Would you pray with me? Father, you have the words of eternal life, and we ask that you would give us ears to receive and to hear those words. We pray that you would give us hearts open, ready to be instructed, corrected, hearts that are ready to rejoice in the God who became man, Jesus Christ. Would you do this here for us now? For Jesus' glory we ask. Amen. 
Humans are born into this world upside down. I've had the privilege of witnessing four humans being born into this world. And it is a remarkable thing. Honestly, I still can't get over the fact that female humans build new humans inside of their body. I know that every mammal does this, but I still can't get over this. But something I have noticed in witnessing the four humans that my wife built inside of her body is that they are born not right side up with their feet firmly planted on the ground, sticking the landing like Simone Biles. They're born upside down. Humans are born upside down. And humans are born upside down. We're born upside down physically, and we're born upside down spiritually. The Bible says that we are sinners by nature and by choice. You know, humans are the only thing God made that doesn't do the one thing God made humans to do. God made us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. But more often than not, we'd rather enjoy pizza and glorify ourselves. Sinners are humans are sinners by nature and choice. This is why you don't have to teach a baby to steal. You have to teach a baby how to share. We are upside down. And Jesus Christ came into this world to set us right side up. And we see this reversal, this turning of what is upside down, right side up, already beginning in the Gospel of Luke. Just consider for the moment what we have seen already reversed in the Gospel of Luke. God breaks his 400-year-long silence by sending a messenger, not to the high priest in Israel, but to a lowly priest in Israel. Not to a young man in the prime of his life, but to an old man closing in on retirement. God gives a baby to an old, barren woman. God chooses a virgin teenager from the middle of nowhere who's likely illiterate to carry the Son of God in her womb. Now, just so you know, this is a patriarchal society. And Joseph is barely mentioned. Zechariah loses his voice for his unbelief, the characters of virtue in this story so far are two unborn babies, an old barren woman, and a teenage girl. So if Luke is making the story up, this is the worst way to convince male-dominated audiences that your king has come. So this is not a story of God rewarding the rich and the powerful and the smart. This is a story of God redeeming the helpless, the poor, the marginalized. Or to borrow a phrase from Mary, those of humble estate. We see an inversion in the text before us. God sending His Son into an upside-down world to set it right-side up. So today we read of Mary visiting her relative Elizabeth, 
And we read of her song of praise that she gives to her God. And the main thing I would like to draw from this text this morning is this. That the blessing of God rests upon humble, joyful servants who believe God will be faithful to his promises. That the blessing of God rests on humble and joyful servants who believe that God will be faithful and keep his promises. Three points I would like to draw from this text. The first is this. In verse 39 to 45, I'd like to see divine reversal for God's glory. Divine reversal for God's glory. This uh, is in verse 39. If you would like to read again, 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The last time that we were together, we left Mary in the small town of Nazareth, the region of Galilee. She's a virgin teenager, not even old enough to have a driver's license, and she's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who's a blue-collar general contractor. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and reveals to her that God has chosen her to be the virgin who will conceive and give birth to the Son of God, that his name is to be Jesus, and he will be great. He is the promised one who will sit on King David's throne and rule and reign forever. She's told by by the angel that her relative Elizabeth, who is barren, will be pregnant with a miracle baby of her own. And we left last week, with Mary believing the word of God, submitting herself to God's word with these words, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And next we read in verse 39 that she goes to Elizabeth. We're told that she makes haste through the hill country of Judah. Now, a little bit of geography I think is helpful here to to kind of set this up. Mary is from Nazareth. The hill country of Judah is something like 80 to 100 miles away. She's 13 or 14 years old. This would be like an eighth grader walking to Cincinnati on foot by herself. Two or three day journey. She, She may have had to sleep in the open. She may have had to sleep in the home of strangers. I don't know if this was a normal thing for junior high kids to do in the first century, but Mary did it, and she did it in haste, which means she didn't stop at every Starbucks along the way. She was determined. And so here we see another reversal in a highly individualistic modern culture. To our mind, faith is personal. In private, 
But Mary knew that she needed to visit her relative. You see, God had done something in her life, and God had done something in Elizabeth's life, and she knew they needed to come together. You see, faith is personal, but faith is never private. It is meant to be shared. She finds the home of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. This is amazing to me. This young lady didn't have a GPS. <laughs> and and if, if you know, some of you know this about me, that I do not have a great sense of direction. I get lost in my backyard. Mary, she made her way through the hill country of Judah to her relative's house. I don't know how she found it. She found it. It's incredible. And she finds Elizabeth in a great mood, which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, she's pregnant with a baby that she's prayed for for a very long time, not to mention the fact that she's had a husband who's mute for six months. <laughs> Lizzie's living her best life. <laughs> in verse 41, we read, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now remember, this is just not any regular baby. This is John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. He is the forerunner, the one who will come before the Messiah, the one who will point to the Messiah. And we heard in verse 15 of Luke 1 that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And when Mary greets Elizabeth... Perhaps they shared a hug and these two wombs touched. The baby inside leaped for joy. Elizabeth is 26, maybe 27 weeks along. John the baptizer is 12 inches long. He weighs two pounds. His vocal cords aren't even developed yet, but already this man's ministry has started. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He can't even say it, but he's saying it with his body. And now we live in a day when unborn children are considered to be non-viable collections of rapidly reproducing cells. And their value and their worth is determined upon whether or not they are wanted by their parents. And if they are not wanted, she can be discarded like human waste. And Scripture wars against this sin, this holocaust in the womb. Dr. Luke chose the word baby for the unborn John the Baptist, which is the very same word Dr. Luke 
uses in chapter 2 for the baby who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Not to mention that Mary's baby, who at this point is maybe three, four, five, a week old, a week since conception, that baby, Mary calls that baby, my Lord. The universal witness of Holy Scripture is clear. Born or pre-born, a baby is a baby. It's human life. It is precious. It is priceless. It is to be protected and loved. Cornerstone and Piqua Baptist Church, please continue to pray that God would make abortion unthinkable in our day. Just this past week, the Supreme Court of these United States heard a case from Mississippi that will likely weaken, if not completely, reverse Roe v. Wade. Pray this happens. Pray that God would change the hearts of more Americans toward the unborn and create well-managed systems that will provide loving homes for those children born to mothers and fathers who aren't ready for them, unprepared by them, or unwilling to care for them. Now, in a room this size, we have to think that there are those here who have been affected by abortion, either directly or indirectly. And I just want you to know God loves you. That even in abortion, we see hope. There's another reversal. In abortion, we say, your life for mine. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, my life for yours. If you have been affected by abortion, directly or indirectly, I'll be hanging around here after the service here today. I would love to talk with you, pray with you. There is healing. There is hope. There's forgiveness. The cross of Jesus Christ, even for abortion. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims in verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Another reversal. Elizabeth is the elder in this relationship. Mary is the teenager, and yet we see it is Elizabeth who is blessing Mary, not the other way around. Luke's gospel mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer. And here we can see the effects of the Spirit's work in a person's life. The Spirit produces humble praise of God in a person's life. 
Notice it is the Holy Spirit who prompts John to point to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who, who prompts Elizabeth to point to Jesus. And then later in this chapter, we will see it is the Holy Spirit who prompts Zechariah to point to Jesus. This is what the Spirit does. He works in us. Humility by which we point to Jesus. In one sense, Elizabeth's experience is common to us all. And most of you have had this experience. It's just so common that we, we just call it going to church. It's when one person encounters the living Christ in the life of another person. We get stirred up in our spirit. We get lifted up and great joy flows out of our life in praise of God. After all, why did the psalmist say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. This is what happens. When you encounter another believer in whom God has placed his spirit and you're stirred up you praise Him. This is why you leave here encouraged, strengthened, and built up. It's why this experience of gathering together face to face is so important. I, I've said this before, but when the pandemic of 2020 came along and we had to shut our services down, as you probably did too, the face to face singing to the Lord with my brothers and sisters was the thing I missed the most. There is just something about gathering in a place on the Lord's day and singing his praise with your brothers and sisters. This is why we work really hard to make the music not be overpowering so that you, when you're singing, can hear one another. It's one of the ways that God builds us up. It's a grace. We treasure it. Verse 45 really drives the point of this passage home. When Elizabeth says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessing is upon the humble servants of God who believe that God will keep his word. And so do you want God's blessing in your life? Believe that God will be faithful. Which is another reversal. God doesn't reserve his blessing for those who do the most. Who perform the best. God's blessing is not reserved for the powerful and the self-made and the accomplished. God gives his blessing to the humble and to the lowly and to those who cannot do for themselves. Those who have submitted themselves to the Lord and trust him for his faithfulness. This reversal is not only humbling, it's also joy-producing. No one earns God's favor, and that means no one has to try to earn God's favor. Your only qualification for grace is your need for it. 
That's a wonderful thing. Which is what we see in the verses that follow. Let's keep reading in verse 46 to 50. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. This, this section of scripture is called the Magnificat. So named because here Mary magnifies the Lord. A precious section of Scripture, this. And you can see in the formatting of your Bible, it is poetic and hymn-like in its structure and style. Every line of the song is laced with biblical truth from the Old Testament. Mary, this young lady, knew her Bible. She draws from the Torah, from the Psalms. She quotes from Samuel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and more. When I was in eighth grade, I could barely spell my own name, and she's quoting from Zephaniah by memory. In fact, there's so much Old Testament language here that some commentators can't even believe that Mary said it. There's no way a 14-year-old girl could know her Bible this well. Well, I've met some 14-year-olds who can. And I pray in this church that the Lord raises up more 14-year-olds who can. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. The word magnify there means to enlarge. Literally, she's saying, my soul enlarges the Lord. Of course, God cannot be enlarged. He cannot be made bigger than He is. After all, He is infinite. But Mary means to say that she is making Him bigger in her life. That's, that's what her hymn is all about. The bigness of God. The greatness of her God. Friend, that's what we need. We need to see God magnified in our lives. We need the pleasures of God deepened in our hearts. We need the volume of God's Word turned up in our minds. This is why we come to church, isn't it? To see the bigness and the greatness of God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. Because more often than not, other things are bigger. My problems are big. My conflicts are big. My health complications are big. Buying the perfect gift for Christmas is big. Everything else is big, but God is small. And I need someone to come into my life and to sing God's word and to speak God's word and say, Big! He's big! Open your eyes! He's big! 
suddenly my conflicts are small. My frustrations fade away and my joy grows. Verse 47, she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The Christian life is one of exceeding joy. We rejoice for a million reasons because we've been saved by grace through faith, saved from sin and death, set free from the power of sin. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this, God is the author of all true happiness. He is the donor of all true happiness. And he that hath him for his God, for his portion, is the only happy man in the world. End quote. I used to say, that God wants you to be holy, but He doesn't care if you're happy. And I don't think that's right. I realized that my view of holiness was wrong. Holiness is happiness in God. Holiness is simply choosing true and lasting joy in God over the fleeting pleasures offered by sin. Christian, one of your greatest witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ is to delight yourself in the Lord to trace the source of your joy up to God and to feast on Him every day of your life. Now, before we move on, a quick note I want to like to point out here. The Blessed Virgin Mary rejoices in God her what? Her Savior. A sinless person needs no saving. So, my dear Catholic friends whom I love so much, I just think they should get their doctrine of Mary from Mary. Mary goes on to unpack this great reversal in her own life. She says, this God, my Savior, has looked upon my humble estate, that God has looked upon her. Remember that from Elizabeth? My God has looked upon me. And so Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Not all generations will call me blessed because I have done great things for God. All generations will call me blessed because God has done great things for me. Mary is blessed. It is fine to call her the Blessed Virgin Mary. That is the language of Scripture. But we must remember that we're reading this about Mary 2,000 years on. Mary just found out that her, all of her life plans have been changed. She was hoping to get married soon. 
And now she's embroiled in a controversial pregnancy. It's very likely that many will think that she's been unfaithful to her betrothed. Who's going to believe her about a visit from an angel that she's giving birth to the Son of God? And yet, Mary knows that blessing isn't measured by human metrics. You're not blessed when everyone likes you. You're blessed when Almighty God looks upon you. So in verse 49, she says, blessed, or holy, I'm sorry, holy is his name. Holy is his name. The holiness of God is one of his chief attributes. To be holy means to be separate, to be different, to be unlike all else. And God is holy in that he is unlike all others. He is completely unto himself, unlike any and unlike all. He is without rival and without equal. He surpasses all else, exceeds all else, transcends all else. In Hebrew, they, the Hebrew language lacks superlatives. And so when something was wanted, needed to be emphasized, they would just repeat and so in Isaiah 6, when you see those creatures around the throne saying, holy, 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 the idea is there's beyond compare. We don't have language or category for this being other than holy. Other than. And one of the ways this holy God shows his holiness, his otherliness, is exactly the way we wouldn't. It is to show mercy. How do we show greatness? Flexing, military might, pushing people around, deep voice, towering figure. How does God show greatness? Mary says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God shows greatness in mercy. Now, fear in this context isn't exactly like the kind of fear that you feel when you see a little mouse scurry in your garage. Fear is reverence, fear is respect. It's the kind of fear that, like a gun owner, needs to have a healthy fear of his firearm. Because without a reverence for what this thing could do, it could harm someone. Misuse of it is deadly. And it's the same with God. Misuse of God is deadly. I mean, after all, Jesus taught us, don't fear the one who can kill your body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Put some feet to Jesus' words there. The Lord is saying that an active shooter in this building is far less dangerous than worshiping God in this building with resentment in, in your heart toward another believer. 
That unrepentant sin is far more dangerous than unrestrained government. And some of us need a reversal of our perspective on danger. To fear the Lord, Mary reminds us, is to receive God's mercy. There's those that fear him who will be shown mercy. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I would like to say to you that what you have been hearing about this big God is true and that this God is far bigger than you ever thought. But my unbelieving friends, your place with this God, your position before this God is far more precarious than you ever dare believe. But the good news is that this God is far more gracious and merciful than you can ever imagine. That one of the great reversals that Jesus Christ brings is that you don't have to do anything to be made right with God. Jesus already did everything to be made right with God. Jesus died on the cross for sin and God raised him from the dead three days later. And when you, dear sinner, turn to Jesus Christ confessing your sin, God will be faithful to forgive you of those sins, to cleanse you of unrighteousness, and to give you peace and joy and eternal life. My non-believing friend, don't leave this building today still in your sin. Trust in the Lord. Whoever brought you to church today, tell them you would like to become a Christian. If you came by yourself, I'll be standing out there after the service. Come and tell me. I'd love to get to know you and introduce you to Jesus Christ. Mary ends her song with giving several prophetic reasons for joy. And this is where we'll end our time together, verses 51 to 56. So if you'd like to pick up reading in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. and The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary speaks of things that God has done in the past, conveying this is who he is. This is what God does. And the implication of this, of course, is if that is what he has done, that's who he is, then that's what he will do. And this kind of thing this is not unique to Mary. The prophets will often speak of what God has done in order to strengthen our faith in what God will do. And this is because Christian hope for the future lies in the past. We know that God will because we know that God has. 
just listen to how the Apostle Paul comforts the Roman church in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see how Paul's doing that? Past to the present for the future? Faith in the present is built on hope for the future that is grounded in God's faithfulness in the past. So this week, when you're in the midst of it, when you're feeling your hope for the future wane, your faith beginning to falter, look to the faithfulness of your God in the past. You'll know that God will because you'll remember that God already has. Remember earlier we read Mary believed, present, that God would fulfill his promise, future, and the reason she gives is before us. All the present tense language of verses 46 to 50 are founded, grounded, and built upon the past tense language of verses 51 to 55. This, this young lady is remarkable. She mentions seven things that God has done in the past. One, he has shown his strength, the strength of his arm. Two, he has scattered the proud. Three, he has brought down the mighty. Four, he has exalted the humble. Five, he has filled the hungry. Six, he has sent the rich away empty. And seven, he has helped his servant Israel. Faith for the present is built on hope for the future that is grounded in God's faithfulness in the past. There are so many reversals in, in this half of her song. I won't have time to unpack them all. But the point is that we are upside down and Jesus Christ came to set us right side up. In the human paradigm, strength is an asset. Weakness is a liability. But that's not how God looks at it. When you wonder about your future, and there's maybe a little anxiety springing up in you, I suspect that you look for evidences that you're going to be okay in the present, in your own strength. How do I know that I'm going to be enough for tomorrow? Well, how am I doing right now? But God would call us to look at our weaknesses in the present, not our strengths. And to remember his faithfulness in the past. You see, to the Lord, your weakness is your greatest asset. But that is where he shows the strength of his arm. The proud will be scattered, the mighty brought down, the rich sent away empty. Notice it is the humble and the hungry and the helpless who receive grace. 
The Bible says that God's ways are not like human ways. God's thoughts are not like human thoughts. And interestingly, that verse, Isaiah 55, 11, comes just after the Lord says this. Remember, your thoughts are not like my thoughts. Your ways aren't like my ways. Here's why. He says, let the, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How is it that God's ways are not like our ways? Well, God longs to show compassion and pardon. Unlike us. God is not driven like we are by reciprocity. By tit-for-tat, payback. God is driven by a desire to show the glory of His grace. Sinner, when you come to the Lord, and when you dump on His lap all the ruin and wreckage of your life, God does not respond to you the way we might respond. With repulsion. Covering our nose and our mouth at the stench of it. No, the Lord moves toward us and wipes away our filth and wraps us in the spotless, resplendent robes of Christ's own righteousness. This is the blessing of God, that the Lord has looked upon you, who has looked upon your weakness, your failure, all the places you haven't measured up, to you, he has shown his strength, his triumph, his finished work. So, dear friend, humble yourself and run to him this week. Lay your mess in his holy lap. And if you need faith for today and hope for tomorrow, look to God's faithfulness in the past. You were born upside down. Jesus Christ came that you would be born again, but this time, right side up. And it's true, you may have fallen on your face, but Jesus stuck the landing, and he gave you the medal, and you can rejoice in that. You can make your own Magnificat. Let's pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Father, our soul needs reviving, and you have given us your word. Our hearts needed joy, and you have given us your word. Our eyes needed opening, and you have given us your word. We confess, Father, that we have not magnified you in the past week as we ought to. And you know all of the ways that sorrows have overshadowed the glories of Jesus. You know all the ways we've been sullen and wallowed in self-pity.
will you forgive us? You know, all the ways in which we have not taken the dullness of our hearts to your perfect word and been revived. Please forgive us. And Father, will you give us your Holy Spirit to produce in us humble joy for this week? A humble joy that rejoices in God our Savior, that leaps even at the mention of his name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Your assurance of pardon this week comes from Psalm 103, verse 17, where God says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him.